This final segment of Stories KUOW's Jenny Cecil Moore gathered at the 6th Annual Palswood Garden Storytelling Festival features L.A.-based and Boston-Cuba, Irish-American-influenced storyteller Antonio Sacre. If you've ever had that experience where you stayed in your car much longer than you wanted to because the person who was so telling that story was just so engaging, this is that guy. His name's Antonio Sacre. Please clap and cheer and welcome him. Thank you. Has anyone here been to Boston? All right. So my mom is from Boston. That's where I was born. Has anyone here been to Cuba? Some of you have been to Cuba. My father was born in Cuba. My father's family left Cuba after the Fidel Castro revolution, uh, revolution in 1960, 59-60, and he ended up in Miami, Florida. How did my dad end up in Boston via Minneapolis? I don't quite know. He was looking for work. He couldn't find work in Miami. And the Salvation Army or the United Way, I forget which thing, said, we have work for you in Minneapolis. We have a ticket where you can get there, and you're going to need this winter jacket. He said, what is that for? They said, you'll find out. My dad got off the plane in 1960 in February in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with a big, beautiful jacket provided by the United Way and his thin linen pants and shoes with no socks on at all. He learned about thermal underwear and socks and boots, and he learned, and he learned English. It was hard for him to learn English. I said, Dad, how did you learn English? He said, mijito, fundido en la silla. My butt in the chair. I took the dictionary, I started at A, and I got through Z. My dad's English vocabulary, his English uh, knowledge is greater than mine. His pronunciation is not so good, though, <laughs> because we have all these extra letters thrown in the middle of words, and since my dad learned it from the dictionary, he learned those letters. He can never say the word plumber without pronouncing the letter B. Mijo, I have a problem with my pipe, I need to call the plumber. Pa, the B is silent. Mijo, I can't keep track. Which letters are silent? Because in Spanish, we say all of the letters. He always says the, the word, the letter L in the word salmon. When we go out to a restaurant, he says, I'll have the salmon. And they never know what he's saying. He also loves American idioms. You know these idioms. We have them. But he can't keep them straight. Mijo, yesterday it was raining very hard. It was raining cows and horses, you know. <laughs> pa, it's cats and dogs. Mijo, some animals are falling from the sky. I can't keep them straight, you know. But my dad said, the secret to learning a foreign language is to fall in love with someone who speaks that language. <laughs> my dad ended up from Minneapolis, a very cold place, to Boston, a cold place, and he met my mother. And so he fell in love with her, and he learned English as fast as he could. And that woman learned Spanish as fast as she could. And nine months and two days later, I was born. <laughs> I just found that out recently. I didn't think that was quite the order of things, but that's what happened. And I was born in Boston. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, with a Cuban father and an Irish-American mother, or like one of my friends calls me, a leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> and then I ended up moving to Chicago eventually, and that's when I discovered a love of storytelling. And in Chicago, there's a lot of kids from Mexico and Puerto Rico, and a lot of kids from all over the world as well. And so I began to tell stories in English and in Spanish for those kids. I speak both languages, and so that's one of the things that I do. And I love telling stories from that part of the Cuban part of my family, and I'm going to tell you one of those today as well. I don't tell stories about my mother's side as often for a couple of reasons. One is there are a number of phenomenal Irish storytellers and Irish-American storytellers on the circuit, and so that's not my tradition necessarily, so they get to tell those stories. And there's not that many Cuban-American storytellers on the circuit. Carmen Didi is one. She may have been here. I'm not sure if you know who that is. She's an amazing storyteller. But there's not many of us. So often when I'm called to a festival, I love to share stories from that side of the culture. But I just came back from Boston, Massachusetts. I just got back on Monday. I've been home for less than, less than a week, and I had came to this festival. And I was there watching and seeing all of the uncles and aunts and all of the cousins. It's a typical big Boston Irish Catholic family. My mom is one of five uncles and aunts. Aunt Joan, Uncle Tom, Uncle Mike, Uncle Pat, and my mom, the youngest, Marianne. Those five children had 15 first cousins. 
of which I am somewhere in the middle. Those 15 first cousins all got married and had kids, and some of my cousins have five kids. There are now 90 of us, and of the 90, 85 of them live within five miles of each other. And my brother Henry and I and my mom live in Los Angeles. Going back, there's no way. It used to be that we all would fit in one place. When there was the five uncles and aunts and the 15 cousins, we barely fit, but we did fit, into Aunt Joan's two-and-a-half bedroom. The half bedroom was basically a closet with a bed. Two-and-a-half bedroom, one bath, and it had a big dining room that only fit the older relatives. And all of the younger relatives had to sit in little fold-up card tables in the den. How many of you had this situation when you were younger? How many of you got to sit at the big table? How many of you were at the little table? Well, I'm still at the little table. There's no room to move up. I look at my Uncle Pat. He's the youngest of the oldest. I say, Uncle Pat, when do I get to go to the big table? He said, when somebody dies. <laughs> which thankfully hasn't happened. And so now all of the little cousins have our kids who sit on the floor with paper plates looking up at me saying, when do I get the cod table? I say, when Uncle Pat dies. <laughs> and as a kid, we would cram into that big table and listen to the adults tell the same old stories. And we love these stories. Uncle Mike riding his bike, he got in an accident. He has a steel plate in his noggin. He would let us touch the steel plate in his noggin. I don't know if that's true or not, but we would touch his head. He had a really hard head. Uncle Pat was an elevator repairman. He found a diamond at the bottom of the elevator shaft. Nobody's seen the diamond, but nobody's ever caught him in a lie either. Uncle Pat was the guy that would gather all the cousins together at Easter time. He'd say, all right, boys and girls, it's Easter time. We know Uncle Pat. I went out and hid a bunch of Easter eggs. I hid 50 Easter eggs. 45 of them have jelly beans and candy. We love jelly beans and candy. But five of those colored Easter eggs have $5 bills in them. Start looking. And then all of the adults would go into the house and slam the door shut. How many of you remember being kicked out of the house and just come back at dinner time, right? This is Easter Sunday. We all went to Mass together, and then it was go find 50 eggs, and they shut, they shut the door, and then we would go, and we would find, oh, we found 45 eggs. Hey, I found an egg with jelly beans. I love jelly beans. I found an egg with, oh, okay, oh, I love M&Ms. I found, hey, did anybody find an egg with a $5 bill in it? No, no $5 bill. Pounding on the door. Five minutes later, Uncle Pat, we found 45 of the 50 eggs. All of them had candy in them, but we didn't find the one with the $5 bills in them. They're out there. Keep looking. Okay, Uncle Pat. <laughs> we kept looking. The end of the day, Uncle Pat, we didn't find the eggs with the money on me. So I hit them really good. The next year, Uncle Pat said, I hit 50 eggs out there, 45 have candy. We know Uncle Pat, and the other ones have five. He says, nope. I put $10 bills in those eggs. We kept searching. We never found that money. And every year, the money kept going. So there were the five eggs with the $5 bills in them, 10 eggs with the, ten, the five eggs with the $10 bills in them. There were five eggs with $20 bills in them. How much money was hidden there? <laughs> Nobody ever found the money. We kept looking. And I got to tell you, I think I'm reasonably smart, but it took me seven years to figure out something. Uncle Pat, I don't think you ever hid $5 bills in those eggs or $10 bills in those eggs or $20 bills in those eggs. He said, finally, one of the cousins figured it out. You're right. I didn't hide $5 bills, but $10 bills or $20 bills in those eggs. I hid $100 bills in those eggs. <laughs> we kept searching. We never found it. It is entirely possible that he hid those eggs in the ground, buried somewhere. It's totally, it's totally possible he didn't hide the eggs. Nobody's ever gotten the truth from that guy. I just saw Uncle Pat. We went golfing on his son's golf course. My, his son doesn't own a golf course. My cousin Marky doesn't own a golf course. My cousin Marky cuts the grass on the golf course. It took him a long time, 20 years, to be head groundskeeper. He actually makes a pretty good living. He works 60-hour days in the summer. He doesn't work in the winter. He's fine. He is the head grounds cutter at the Bridgewater Golf Course. And there he was. Uncle Pat said, hey, hey, let's go golfing. Okay, Uncle Pat. We go golfing. He's a pretty good golfer. We're golfing. Uncle Pat, I, tried, I always try to get him on the, uh, is, was there money in the eggs? You never know. Maybe they're still there. Maybe they're not. And all of a sudden, he takes out a bag of marshmallows, and he starts eating the marshmallows. 
You want a marshmallow? I don't want a marshmallow, Uncle Pat. Thanks. You sure you don't want a marshmallow? Don't want a marshmallow. Golfing. Next hole. You want a marshmallow? I don't want a marshmallow, Uncle Pat. I love marshmallows and s'mores, but I don't like to eat them. By okay, you sure you don't want a marshmallow? Don't want a marshmallow. He starts firing marshmallows out of the cart. <laughs> Everywhere we go, every time I say I don't want a marshmallow, he throws it out onto the thing. <laughs> Uncle Pat, that's littering. Yeah, 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 it's okay. You don't want the marshmallows. I don't want I'm just going to throw them out. That's not good. That's not good, Uncle Pat. I don't care. We get in at the clubhouse. His son is there, br bright red. Dad! What are you doing? Everyone thinks they lost their golf balls. They're finding marshmallows everywhere. <laughs> it's not funny, Dad. It's not funny. Stop it. So we get on the back nine. Uncle Pat is golfing. Uncle Pat, that's funny. Mark, Marky was so mad. He goes, yeah, I do it every time I come here. <laughs> Sometimes I put them in the hole. They go into the hole, and there's a marshmallow in the hole. Hole number 11. He pulls out a bag of cotton balls. Do you need a cotton ball? I don't need a cotton ball. He starts humming cotton balls everywhere. We go in, Marky's still sleeping, and Marky, Marky thinks it's funny um, the first time, but the 17th time, not funny at all. Anyway, the last little bit of my Boston vacation was a trip down memory lane. My aunt lives next to cranberry bogs. Do you know what a cranberry bog is? Do they have them here? Oh, they do. Okay, so in Los Angeles, I have to explain what it is. It's just, it, I mean, it looks like a lake, and then it freezes over. They don't freeze over here, do they? Okay, so in Boston they do. All of my cousins growing up played ice hockey all the time. In Delaware, there was only one ice skating rink. Nobody played hockey. But in Boston, to hang out with my 15 cousins, boys and girls, we had to play hockey. We learned how to skate. How many of you know how to skate or play hockey? So we learned how to skate in Boston. My Uncle Tom, the, um, Pat's, Pat's other brother, the firefighter, he made a rink in his backyard. He just put two-by-fours around, it, not a very big area, but big enough for five of us to play a small game with small nets. And with the garden hose, he put down pieces, sheets of plastic. He'd fill it up with a garden hose. In the morning, we had a makeshift ice rink, skating. We'd skate on the lakes. There was always that time of the year when you had to figure out if the lake was strong enough to skate. And they always had no skating, and there was always one kid who had to go out and figure out if it was good or not, and there was always a kid who would fall through the ice. So there's always the whole thing of saving the kid that fell through the ice. So the bog was there. I took my kids down to the bog. I said, that is where we would skate. We'd play hockey. My son, born and raised in Los Angeles, what's hockey? I tell him about the game. We would put skates on. We'd go out. We'd skate on that bog. He said, wow, and we played hockey. I said, one time, my cousin Maddie, who's exactly my age, one week apart, we went down to the bog on a bitter, cold Boston day, probably 10 degrees with a wind chill factor, and we had brooms, and we broomed off all of the snow, a little mini Zamboni. We were kids with brooms. We clear out a spot in the bog, and kids appeared out of nowhere. If you build it, they will come. There was 30 against 30. We had to make the rink even bigger. Huge rink in the middle of this frozen bog in the middle of the winter in Boston. Kids playing hockey. And then after the first game was over, I said, Maddie, I can barely feel my fingers. He pulls off his gloves. His hands were turning white. He said, I can barely feel my fingers. I said, Maddie, what should we do? He said, play more hockey. We started playing more hockey. We played another game, 30 against 30. I said, Maddie, my toes, I can barely feel my toes. I think I'm getting frostbite. He says, I think I'm getting frostbite. What should we do, Maddie? He said, play more hockey. We start playing more hockey. We lose the puck in the snow. We can't find the puck. Maddie, I'm frozen. I think I got frostbite. We lost the puck. What should we do? He said, play more hockey. How do you play more hockey with no puck? He said, imaginary hockey. I got the puck, he says. He throws it in the air. The imaginary puck lands, and we start playing imaginary hockey with the puck. And it is the imaginary game is even better. We're doing 360s and leaping and hitting, and I shot a, school, a goal from 100 feet away. And then the sun goes down. We can, can't see it all, and we hear a voice from the shore. Aunt Joan, what are you kids doing? We're playing hockey, Mom. It's freezing cold. It's pitch dark. We lost the puck, too, Mom. It's freezing cold. It's pitch dark. You lost the puck. What should we do, Mom? She said, play more hockey. <laughs> she came down and scooted along. We went back in. My kids saw that bog, and that's part of, that part of my upbringing growing up. 
little stories from Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> Donald Davis is a storyteller that's with us today. Has anyone heard Donald Davis tell stories? So he's, uh, he's been a mentor and a teacher of mine, and I'm, I've been asking him a little bit about how do you gather family stories, and he says it's really just the people you know and the places you were. Where were you with those people? Who were those people? If they're still alive, you have uh, the ability to call them on the phone and ask them about some of the places they knew, and if they're not, you can use your memories and remember them as well. Um, so this is my little writer's journal. How many of you have a writer's journal? How many of you have one and you never open it? <laughs> How many of you have one and you're behind on your writing? You want to do whatever. How many of you kept a journal for when one of your kids were born, if you have kids? When my son was born, my wife gave me a beautiful, uh, empty, crafted journal. And it was my first step. And there was like little prompts the first time, whatever it was. And I meticulously filled that in. It's a beautiful document. I can't wait for my son to be old enough to read it and, and do it. Then my daughter was born two and a half years later. And my wife gave me the same book. And I wrote the beautiful story of her birth and then never wrote in either journal again. <laughs> How many of you have a second child? How many of you are the second child? Um, Donald Davis, tells he told me this yet last night, actually. I was asking him about this. He said that he was the first child, and there's hundreds and hundreds of pictures of him. And his brother, the second child, there's, no, there's basically his birth <laughs> picture, and that's it. Um, so one of the things I do, I don't write about my kids anymore. I'm too busy trying to live with them and run around after them. But... I talk to my dad on the phone every day, and whenever I do, I do have this open, and every now and then, he says something that I know I have to write down. So what it is is this. He knows dichos. Who's heard the word dicho? Okay, dicho means a saying, but if you're, if you're a Spanish speaker and you hear dicho, you actually hear more. You hear rhyme and poetry and wisdom and laughter and Bible verses and wisdom from the elders and things from Cuba. Every Spanish-speaking country has them. Some are the same and some are specific to the country. So for instance, in Cuba they have camarón que se duerme, se lo lleva el corriente. If the shrimp sleeps all day, the current will take it away. In some states in Mexico, it's not the shrimp, it's some other animal because of the way the state is. But we have the same sort of thing. My dad speaks in dichos every two or three conversations. And when he does, I write them down. So the last week, I talked to him nearly every day. These are the things that he said. If I were to ask him to tell me all the dichos he knows, he would forget. He doesn't know. I'm keeping the dichos in my family. One of them was, he's now 82 years old. He's in wonderful health. I know he's going to live forever. He says... Que verde era mi valle, y yo no lo sabía. How green was my valley, and I didn't even know it. And then, I'll, so I'm a, I'm a children's book author as well. And part of my job is to write stories, and part of my job is to collect rejections. <laughs> and he always asks me, do you have any books coming out? And I'll say, no, but I got a really great, beautiful rejection from a big publisher. They said, I'm an awesome author, but they can't publish the book. And every time I tell him that story, which is every couple times a year, he says, tanto alcantaro hasta que se pegue. I looked up all those words in the dictionary and I couldn't find any of them. I said, what does that mean? He said, it's an old Cuban thing. And then it became a story. The women used to go down to the well with a cantaro, which is a great big ceramic pot, and they would carry water. And they would carry so much water back and forth that eventually that cantaro would se pegue. That ceramic pot would break and they would have to get a new pot. So when I said I got rejected, he did. He said, keep going to the well until that pot breaks and then make a new pot. My dad doesn't write and doesn't know anything about writing, but that's phenomenal writer's advice. Make a pot. Go to the well with it as many times as you can. And when it breaks, make another pot. Um, and then he loves baseball. So he said, uh, the Red Sox are win, the Red Sox lose. He loves the Red Sox because of Boston. He loves the Minneapolis Twins or whatever the, the name of that team is. But the, the Red Sox lost. They're doing well, but they lost. And he said, ay, niño, la pelota es redonda, pero viene una caja cuadrada. The ball is round, but it comes in a square box. <laughs> I said, what does that mean? He said, I don't know, but I love the saying. You know? <laughs> so after six years of collecting these dichos, I've collected over 300 of them. I don't remember them. I have to go back to my journal. I try to use them with my son, talk to my son about them, and my daughter as well. And then, about six years ago, going down to the well, trying to think about it, I came up with this story. It's a collection of 
10 of my father's favorite dichos and a couple of small moment memories that I had going to my grandmother's house in Miami, Florida. Francisco wanted a mango from the tree. He said, Papa, I want to go pick a mango by the tree all by myself. He said, you know where that mango tree is? Sure, Papa. I walk out of our house and I pass my uncle's house. I love my uncle, Papa. Your uncle loves you too. Then I walk past my abuela's house. I love my grandmother, Papa. Your abuela loves you too. Then I walk past my tia's house, my auntie's house. I like my auntie. You don't love your auntie? Well, Papa, I love my auntie. It's just that sometimes she's nice and sometimes she's mean. How many of you have a mean auntie? How many of you are the mean auntie? <laughs> he said, Papa, Papa, said, Francisco, just visit your tia. She loves you. Okay, Papa, I'll visit my tia. And past my tia's house is the mango tree. He walked past his uncle's house. Uncle, I'm going to pick a mango. You're getting big, Francisco. Thank you, tío. He goes past his abuela's house. She didn't speak English. Yo voy a agarrar un mango, abuela. Muy bien, Francisco. He walked past his auntie's house. There she was, sweeping the top step con una cara de muy pocas amigas, with a face that looked like it had no friends at all. <laughs> sweep, sweep, sweep. Hola, tía. Me. <laughs> Adios, tía. He got to the mango tree. He climbed up the tree and was just about to pick a mango when he heard bzzz, una abeja, a bee, bzzz, dos, bzzz, tres, cuatro, cinco, seis, tantas abejas que él bajó el árbol. And he began to run past his tía. She was still sweeping that top step. Sweep, sweep, sweep. When she saw him run by, she went, me, ran past abuela, ran past his uncle. Where are the mangoes? He got back to his papá. His papa said, Francisco, ¿encontraste el árbol? Did you find the mango tree? I did, papa. And were there mangoes in the tree? Aha, there were plenty of mangoes in the tree. And how many did you pick? None. Ay, mijito, mejor pájaro en mano que cien volando. It's better a bird in your hand than a hundred flying in the air. What's that one in English? A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. In Spanish, the way it rhymes in Spanish is, bird in the hand is worth a hundred flying in the tree flying in the air. Mejor un mango en la mano que cien en el árbol. It's better a mango in the hand than a hundred in the tree. What happened? Papa, I was scared of the bees. Ay, mijito, no hay mal que por bien no venga. There's nothing bad that something good doesn't come from it. The bees can sting you and that's bad, but without the bees, we'd have no flowers. We'd have no fruit. Don't be scared of the bees. Take my hat and gently shoo the bees away. He took his papa's hat. He went past his uncle. My dad, help me. That's good. Dime con quien andas y te digo quien eres. Tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. Your dad's a smart man. I know papa. I know my papa is smart. He walked past his abuela. Abuela said, tanto alcantaro hasta que se pegue. Keep going to the well until you get a mango. Okay, abuela. He walked past his tia and there she was. Sweep, sweep. Ah, he got to the mango tree. He climbed that tree, and there were the bees, and he was scared. But he remembered there's nothing bad, that something good doesn't come from it. And without the bees, there'd be no mangoes. He took his papa's hat, and he gently shooed those bees away. And he picked his very own mango, put it into the hat. He thought, I should get one for my papa, and my mama, and my uncle, and my abuela, and my auntie. No, I don't want to go for my auntie. Yeah, I should get one for my in a bad music, me. I should, should he get one for his auntie? In Los Angeles, they're always like, no, nothing for the auntie. I should live up here, not Los Angeles. These kids are like, yes, you're so sweet. He got one for the auntie. He put it in the hat, but now he had a problem. He needed to hold on to the hat with both hands. He also needed at least one hand to climb down, a little too high to jump, and if he threw the mangoes out, they get smushed. But then he figured it out. He put that hat on his chest, and very carefully, he reached around the trunk of the tree, and he held on tight enough to not fall, but not too tight to squish the mangoes. And he started to scooch down the tree. Scooch, scooch, scooch. It was working. He was halfway down the tree. Scooch, scooch. He was three-quarters of the way down the tree. Scooch. He was seven-eighths of the way down the tree. <laughs> Scoot. He was 15 sixteenths of the way down the tree when he held on just a little too tightly and one of the mangoes got smushed. Psh, 
do. Sorry, Auntie. Scoop. Ah, there goes Abuela's mango. Scoop. Ah, there's my uncle's mango. Well, I have three mangoes left. One for me, one for my mama, and one for my papa. Oh. By the time he got down, all the mangoes were smushed, and he remembered what his grandmother told him. El que mucho abarca, poco aprieta. If you try to grab too much at once, you end up with nothing. So he went up the tree. He grabbed one mango, put it under his chin, and down, and up. And down and up and down until he had a hat full of mangoes. And he looked at his uncle, his dia. He said, a mango's going to help her feel better. And even though he was scared, he walked up her long sidewalk. And she looked meaner and meaner until by the time he got there, he said, dia, do you want a mango? And he closed his eyes and waited for her to make that mean sound. But she didn't. When he opened his eyes, she wasn't smiling, but her face had relaxed. She took the mango out. She said, Francisco, yo tenía hambre. Y cuando hambre toca la puerta... Amor sale por la ventana. I was hungry, and when hunger knocks on somebody's front door, love goes running out of the back door. She said, that's why I was in a little bit of a bad mood earlier. He said, Auntie, you're in a lot of a bad mood. She said, don't push your luck. He gave a mango to his abuela. She said, pan para hoy, hambre para mañana. If you give away all of your bread today, you'll be hungry tomorrow. Don't worry, I've got plenty, abuela. He went to his uncle and gave mangoes to his uncle and his auntie and his cousins, and by the time he got home, they were all gone. His papa said, ay, mijito, de vez en cuando es mejor dar que recibir. Sometimes it's better to give than receive. Let's eat lunch, and we'll all go get mangoes together. But as they were eating, all the family came with their mangoes, including Tia with a basket full of mangoes. She said, mijito, amor con amor se paga. Love is repaid with love. And she gave those mangoes to him with a real smile. He took them from her. He said, Dia, there's one thing I'd like to say to you. She said, what is that, honey? He said, me. She laughed, and she said, barriga llena, corazón contento. With a full stomach, there's a happy heart. And that's the story called A Mango in the Hand. Gracias. Thank you. Antonio Sacre is an is an extraordinary performer. He's a storyteller, a solo performer, an author, and a playwright. He writes and performs internationally in English and Spanish. He's the author of four books, nine plays, and a number of, of um, video and audio recordings. I want to share with you a, a little-known fact about Antonio that he shared with me. At his very first storytelling festival, many years ago, when he was still very nervous about telling stories. Ms. Catherine Tucker Wyndham gave him uh, a buckeye nut from one of her trees in, in Selma, Alabama. He carries it and her memory with him everywhere. Please help me welcome Antonio Sacre. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Larry. She gave me that nut. She knew I was scared. I said, Miss Catherine, will this help me at the storytelling festival? She said, no, you need good stories for the festival, but you can have the nut. <laughs> I carry that with me. How many of you have done something to impress somebody that you liked? How many of you have done something silly to impress somebody that you liked? We're here in the Pacific Northwest. How many of you have been camping? How many of you camping is a part of your life, camping and hiking? How many of you love camping and hiking? This is what you love to do. How many of you love it because somebody you love loves it? How many of you don't love it but do it because somebody you love loves it? How many of you won't do it? You just don't do it. <laughs> I got into camping to impress a girl. She said, I think we're going to end up together. I think we're going to be married. I think we're going to have children. I said, I think you're right. I think this is something awesome. She said, but I need to know how we do on a long car trip together. And I need to know how we do camping together. She said, do you camp? I said, I do now. And I went to REI and I got everything you needed to get and whatever the guy sold me, I bought it and we got into the car and we took a long car trip to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho 
and then south to the Snake River or Hell's Canyon or the Devil's Spot. I forget what the name of it was. And we got out all of the gear from the rental right at the beginning of this four-day hike. It was a loop hike that she was going to do. I was fit to do it, but not for camping. And I showed her all this stuff as we were packing our bags. I had the stove, and I had the food, and we had the water filter, and the if it rained, and if it didn't rain. And she said, great. And she showed me what she had. She said, great. Do we have the matches? I forgot the matches. There was no way we were going to eat. We drove back all the way, stayed in a hotel, came back the next day, and we started our hiking. And then we got all the way up to our spot. It's time to set out the tent. And I had left the instructions in the car. And I had no idea how to set the tent up. Luckily, she did. We set up the tent. And that night, we talked. She said, ah, someday we'll do this with our family. Someday they'll help with the tent. You won't ever forget the matches again. It's going to be great. We woke up the next morning, and we saw these massive animals with huge horns coming out. Not far, not close, enough to be in awe but not scared, and there they went. We hiked and we met with another hiker, and I said, we saw moose. He said, ah, you, you, you saw moose. I said, yeah, with the, the things coming out of their head, they were moose. He said, well, I've, I've been hiking in these hills for 35 years. Um, are you sure it wasn't an elk? I said, I don't know. It was an animal with horns coming out. Maybe it, was, maybe it was an elk. I have no idea. He said, well, I'm not saying you did, and I'm not saying you didn't. If you saw moose, you were very lucky. You probably saw elk. Great, we saw elk. We came back out of that hill, and a year later, we were married. And I lost the gear. You know how you're like, I just, I don't know where it went. So we didn't have to go camping again. <laughs> and then we had kids, and we were too busy to go camping again, living in Los Angeles. And then one day, my son was about four. My daughter was one or two. He came outside of our house in Los Angeles, right in the city. He looked up at the sky. He said, Dad, what's that? I said, that's the star we can see in Los Angeles. And my wife said, this is not right. We are, going camp we are going camping next weekend. We magically found the gear, and we took our kids just 40 miles outside of the city. It was car camping. Who does car camping? This is how we did and still do car camping. We drove to In-N-Out Burgers. We bought a huge burger meal. We drive to a parking, uh, we, we park the car from, the, from the, the trunk. We get out our tent, we set it up. You have, there's bathrooms there, there's everything there. And the sun set, and Henry said, there's the star. And 10 minutes later, Dad, there's another one. And 10 minutes later, he stopped talking. Dad, we sat there and saw the night sky for the first time, and I saw it through his eyes. Nina was just one babbling there, and he couldn't get over it. And then he said, Dad, what's that moving? And I said, I think that's an airplane. Dad, what's that? I don't know what that is. Dad, what's that? And he pointed at this thing that was moving across the sky. I said, honey, it's a shooting star. We're seeing a shooting star. He said, wow, Dad, it's still shooting. I said, honey, I don't know much about shooting stars, but I don't think that that's a shooting star. And a neighbor who is right next to us, you know how car camping is, he's like, it's the space station. We saw the space station go across the sky. 9 o'clock at night, 9.30, 10 o'clock, it's now way past their bedtime. Tuck the kids into bed, into their little sleeping bags. There they are, about ready to go to sleep. And we start singing the songs that we sing at night. Los pollitos dicen... Pio, 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 cuando tienen hambre, cuando tienen frío. Henry falls asleep. Little Nina falls asleep. My wife and I holding hands across the sleeping bag. Honey, we're camping with our children. 2.30 in the morning, Nina wakes up screaming. 
it's not the scream that you're used to. It's the scream that I know the entire campground is listening to. And you know, sometimes you can get them to go back to sleep and sometimes you can't. She doesn't. She cries until six o'clock in the morning when she falls asleep, gets up. My wife is in line in the bathroom, waiting on the line, her head hanging down. She can feel everybody staring daggers into her. And a girl behind her said, I'm sorry, that was my dog barking. And a kid behind her said, I'm sorry, that was my music playing. And my wife said, I'm sorry, that was my kid crying. None of us had heard the other with the amount of noise that we were making. <laughs> and we packed up the car and we got back home and then the camping gear disappeared again. I don't know where it went. And then two summers later, Henry said, Dad, remember when we went out and looked at the stars and we went camping again two summers ago. And when we were going camping, we were there camping, and we stopped into, there was no In-N-Out Burger, but there was a Del Taco. Do you have Del Taco up here? Beautiful tacos and burritos, everything's great. And we're, we're um, in, in, the, uh, in the tent again, it's ready to go to sleep. And the song that we had been singing that summer for some reason was, In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. We saw the stars. We didn't see the space shuttle. Henry wants, I mean the space station. Henry wants to see the space station every time we go camping now. We saw it one time. Will we ever see it again? Maybe, maybe not. And we're sitting there and all cuddled into our sleeping bag. Nina now has been sleeping through the night when all of a sudden my wife says, Daddy. Was that you? I said, I've got this zero degree insulated sleeping bag. I'm sure that what I ate at Del Taco would stay in the bag. <laughs> she said, honey, it didn't stay in the bag. What do you say? I'm sorry. It's okay. Getting ready to settle down, sleeping. About 10 minutes later, daddy, was that you? No, it wasn't me. And from the other corner of the tent, little Henry says, it was me, mommy. <laughs> He said, oh, what do you say? He said, I'm sorry. Fifteen minutes later, Daddy, Henry, it wasn't me. Henry said, it wasn't me. We all look over in the corner. She says, Nina, was that you? What do you say, Nina? High five, Daddy. <laughs> That's what you say, high five. And my wife is there. She's sticking her nose to the little screen. She says, oh my goodness, I don't know. If when we met, and I don't know why we, and I don't know what. I said, why, why? She says, you know, if I had known that was going to happen, I said, what would you have done? She said, I would have brought air freshener. <laughs> and this past school year, the end of Henry's second grade, the second grade moms and dads organized a camping trip for all of the second graders and all the family. We had this huge campground in Malibu overlooking the ocean, the mountains behind us, not close to the ocean, but right there. And all of those kids came together. And all of the families had the things that you eat in Los Angeles. We had our, we had our kale salad, and we had the arugula, and we had all the, we had the, and one of the moms had decided that it would be okay if we had s'mores. And so she brought, but she knew that all the Silver Lake Los Angeles parents are not so happy about sugar that you eat. So she brought one marshmallow per kid and one square of, uh, one square of carob chocolate and uh, the graham crackers that are made with all organic, um, not good tasting ingredients. And so all the kids are there toasting their marshmallows. And one of the moms says, Ramona. You know how you always drop your food. There's only one marshmallow per kid, one piece of carob chocolate, one cracker. Be careful with the s'more. She said, okay. She gets that s'more. She's holding on to it, and she is just tiptoeing across the campground. And then, like slow motion, 30 parents can see this root growing out of the ground. And there's absolutely no way she's not going to hit the root. And her foot hooks it, and she falls down. And she falls down like a cartoon character. She, every single inch of her body is hitting the ground, but somehow, magically, the s'more is all up in the air. She gets up covered in mud, the s'more pristine. She said, I saved the s'more. <laughs> that night, all of the parents said, Who's going to sing? Nobody bought a guitar. They all looked. They said, you're a storyteller, aren't you? Why don't you tell them stories? I said, I get paid to tell stories. <laughs> 
if you pay me, I'm telling stories to these kids. But I'm no, I'm the storyteller at the school. That's the way I volunteer at the school. So we sat all the kids down. All the parents disappeared. I don't know what they were doing. And the first story I started with was Ramona saved the Samoa. And they said again, and I told it again, and there she was, covered in covered in mud, just saying again, because you know, if it's funny once to a second grader, it's funny 17 more times. There's nowhere else to go. And then the kids started saying, "Tell stories about me. Tell stories about me." And I've been at that school for three years. I know stories about most of those kids. And so I looked at I looked at little Alex. Alex. When you were in kindergarten, we would walk with you to school. Me, you, Henry, your mom, your dad, we'd walk down the street, and you would look at things, and you would name them. What would I say? He knew. I've told this story to him before. You looked at a box on the side of the road. You'd say, hi, Boxy Maloxy. You looked at the house. Hi, Housey Malousy. Hi, Treely Malili. And then Story, there's a girl named Story, S-T-O-R-E-Y. Story said, what about me? I said, Story, at Alex's birthday party, there was a great, big um, cooler filled with juice boxes. Have you had this juice box thing? And again, I don't know what is wrong with these parents. It's one juice box per kid. There's always a kid who grabs one, more than one juice box. And so all of the first grade kids got their juice boxes, but little three-year-old brother goes to the goes to the the box. There's no juice box left. He starts crying. Story goes over. She said, there's always a juice box at the bottom of the cooler. She shoves her arm down into that ice. Her teeth are chattering. She's moving around and she has a huge smile. Pulls it up. Ha! She said, story save the day. I said, yes, stories save the day. He had that juice box. I told stories story about saving the juice box. Little Eden said, tell my story. Eden, at five years old in kindergarten, was the smallest kid in kindergarten. Can you remember the smallest kid in kindergarten? Eden was the fastest kid in kindergarten. Do you remember the fastest kid in kindergarten? Eden could outrun any kindergarten boy or girl and most of the first grade boys and girls and we have a little playground contraption on the school playground there are steps that come up here like this and then you go up and you come down a little slide that corkscrew is a half a corkscrew it's not a big slide and then there's a, a ladder that comes up and it twists around like this Eden would climb to the top of the steps going to the half corkscrew uh, slide and she did this thing like Wonder Woman or Superwoman, she would leap off of those steps. She would be completely horizontal. She would grab the bottom of that ladder. She would swing, 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 throw herself in the air, do a half twist, land, and go, ha, ha, <laughs> If she becomes a gymnast 10 years from now, I'll know when it started right there. And she would do it day after day. No other kindergarten kid could make that leap. It was too far for them. But Eden would do it and do it and do it. One day I was picking my son up after school in kindergarten and I see Eden climbing the steps. I'm going to watch this miraculous piece of gymnastics happening. She jumps through the air, flying like Superwoman, and somehow she misses the ladder. She has never missed the ladder, so as she's flying through the air, she doesn't prepare to hit the ground. You can see her. She's just like, I can't believe I missed the ladder. This is impossible. How is it possible that I missed the ladder? And she hits the ground Bam! And she goes bump, 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 bump. Because the playground is covered in half-inch rubbery plastic. Have you seen the playgrounds? Do you remember the playgrounds when we were younger? It was like, like rebar metal cement that was under there. And do you remember the slides that we would go down? There was a slide that was 13 steps up, and it was straight down at an angle like this with sheet metal, built right directly underneath the sun. So if you didn't get scalded on the way down or ruined by the screws that were sticking out, you would be flying over the rebar and the cement. How many of you have scars on your knees from these playgrounds? Well, Eden hits the ground. She's bump, 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 bump. And she's crying, but not because she's really hurt. She's just, she's just mad and sad that she missed it. I went running over. I said, Eden, are you okay? She said, yeah. I said, are you hurt? She said, no. I said, why are you crying? I missed the rail. I said, I know, baby. You were jumping through the air like Superwoman. You missed the ladder. You hit the ground, and you went, bum, 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 bum. She went, hee, 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 hee. <laughs> Again, bum, 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 bum. 
<laughs> again. That day, camping with those kids, I had to tell that story. And I had to tell story after story about those kids. And then finally, it was time to go to sleep. We go to sleep, and Henry said, Dad, tell everybody the story about when we had burritos before we went camping. <laughs> I said, honey, the kids at school don't need to know that story. Yes, they do, Dad. No, they don't. And that night, Henry started singing. He said, in the tent, the quiet tent, daddy was farting. <laughs> Shh. And soon, all the kids in the second grade started singing that song. But they sang, in the tent, the quiet tent, Henry's daddy was farting. They just finished second grade. They said, thank you, Henry's daddy. I said, you're welcome, Henry's friends. I was thinking about dictionaries when Donna was talking about that dictionary. So the English dictionary that we have, the Oxford English Dictionary, have you seen this dictionary? So the equivalent of that in Spanish is the Velasquez Dictionary. The Velasquez Dictionary is about this big. My grandmother bought it for me so that I could learn Spanish and, sp and speak the words that I needed to speak. And whenever I need to know a word in Spanish, I would go and get the Velasquez Dictionary, pull it off of the, the bookshelf, and would look up the word. I speak to my children in Spanish. My wife speaks to them in English. I do that because it's great to have another language. I do that because I want them to speak Spanish to my dad. My dad speaks English great, but I want them to be bilingual. And so when my son was about three years old, he was sitting at the table, and he said, Daddy, pásamelos, and he stopped. He pointed at the bowl of blueberries. He said, Daddy, ¿cómo se dice blueberries en español? I said, mijito, yo no sé. I went to the dictionary. I couldn't find it in the Velasquez dictionary. I called my dad on the phone. I said, oye, Nico, oye, tu nieto quiere comer blueberries, pero nosotros no sabemos cómo decir blueberries. Y yo no encuentro en el diccionario. ¿Cómo se dice blueberries en español? Does anyone need a translation for that? He said, mijito, no sé, no había blueberries in Cuba. We didn't have blueberries in Cuba. He said, what is the dictionary? I said, I said, it's not in the dictionary. He said, ay, mijito, no sé, que no sé qué vamos a hacer. Voy a llamar al profesor. He knows a professor of Spanish. He called the guy. He said, ¿cómo se dice blueberries in Spanish? My dad called me up two days later. He said, mijito, you say blueberries. There's no word for it. You have to say, variedad de los arrándanos azules. <laughs> you have to say a variety of cranberry that happens to be blue. <laughs> My son's three and a half trying to say blueberry, and I don't give him the blueberries until he says, variedad de los arrándanos que son azules. <laughs> Why does my dad's language need all of those syllables to say these things? When my son was learning Spanish, I would count up the syllables of some of the things. Ball in English. Pelota in Spanish. Thanks in English. Gracias in Spanish. Fire truck in English. Camión de los bomberos in Spanish. And... There are words that don't translate the other way. We have 10 different ways to say sweetie, honey, sweetheart, mi cielo, mi vida, mi corazón, mi tesoro de mi vida. My dad can say he loves my child in 10 different ways that doesn't translate into other language. And so my dad and my son speak Spanish together. One day, my brother came to the house, and my son at the time, he was about three and a half, he was sitting on a drum playing another drum, and my brother came in, and he started yelling at my son, Oye, ¿qué tú estás haciendo aquí sentadito en un tambor? What are you doing sitting on the drum, playing another drum? He said, Eso no se hace. That's the Cuban finger. You don't do that. No puedes sentar en un tambor y tocar el otro tambor. My son said, I can sit on one drum and play the other drum. And my brother said, No se puede hacer esto. Eso no se hace. You don't do this. My son said, Si se puede. No se puede. Si se puede. And they're going back and forth. And finally, my son gets off of the drum. He goes over to the bookshelf. He pulls down the Velasquez Dictionary. It thumps on the ground. It's upside down. He starts to leaf through the pages, and he goes, Oye, tío, aquí en el diccionario dice que yo puedo sentar en el tambor. It says here in the dictionary that I can sit on the drum. <laughs> Oye, si dice aquí, tú puedes hacerlo. Entonces, if, you, if it says it in the dictionary, you can do it. So we use that dictionary to solve any problems now, whatever it is. It says here, Dad, I can stay up late. Okay, if it says in the dictionary, you can do it. 
Bueno, um, so my dad loves that. My dad will tell me these different things. And he remembers one last little story about my dad that when I was younger, we all went down to Miami and he let my uncle Tito take the two brothers and I out on a boat in Miami. Who's been out on a boat? We get on the boat and we are out on the boat and we go straight out to the ocean and we are out so f my first time on a boat, my two brothers behind me, Uncle Tito driving the boat and we are out, we can barely see the shore. My uncle says, who wants to go swimming? I looked out. It wasn't that long from the edge of the boat to the water. I said, uh-uh, and I heard splash. It's my brother Robert. He's in the water. And splash, my brother Henry's in the water. And then splash, Uncle Tito's in the water. Nobody's driving the boat. And finally, they get back in the boat, and I go splash into the water. And I'm out there in the middle of the ocean looking up at my brothers and my uncle. He's so proud that I was able to take that leap off of the boat into the middle of the ocean when all of a sudden, like my memory goes, into slow motion, his eyes get big and my brother's eyes get big. And Robbie goes, what are all those little bubbles? And my uncle says, medusas. Medusa. What's a medusa? It's a jellyfish. But I had never heard the word medusa, and I didn't have my dictionary. I said, medusa, what's that? And just then, it felt like there was a bee stinging me under the, under the water, and another bee, and another bee, and I couldn't understand how you could get stung under the water. And then I thought, it's got to be fire. It's probably little, how can there be fire? And my uncle dives off of the boat, throws me back onto the boat. He comes back, and there I am, covered in jellyfish welts. And he had meat tenderizer on the boat for this very issue. He poured it all over me. Great. Now I have a story to tell about it. We get back home, and he said, No diga nada a la abuela. <laughs> don't tell anything to grandma. We don't. We get into the living room, and it was su still super exciting. And even, even that, it was interesting. And so we're peeling off our, our clothes. We're peeling off our little T-shirts and our shorts. And my brother goes, wow. It looks like you still have shorts on. And it looks like you still have a shirt on. And I looked at him, hey, it looks like you still have shorts on. And it looks like you still have a shirt on. And my other brother, too, we were completely white here and bright red everywhere else. And my grandmother saw that. She said, oh, yeah. And she started screaming at my uncle. And he said, I'll take care of it. He, she kicked him out. She threw us on the bed. She took out a half gallon of white vinegar and poured it all over us. And then she got vapor rub and put it on our chests. Va vapor rub for Cubans is the cure for everything. <laughs> and we sat there with that minty vapor rub smell and the pungent vinegar as we sat there waited for our second degree burns to cool. And five days later, my dad said, who wants to go on the boat? We said, nobody wants to go on the boat. We came back to Delaware. We had a story to write in, in our third grade composition class about what we did over the summer. And I have a story that I tell years later about that as well. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you all very much.